Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Solid 60 podcast, which I've been doing for a while now. I don't know why I (laughs) I was going to say how long, because I've really got no idea. I know I started it sometime early last year. It's supposed to be weekly. It's a little off at the moment, but uh, I'll get back on track. It's still reasonably regular. Uh, We're at 47, which is neck and neck with Banana Split, which I did the other day and finally got uploaded this afternoon. It's now nearly 8 o'clock on the 26th of March. I actually had the day off for once, which rarely happens. It was such a freaking logistical nightmare, though I don't think I'll do it very often. I had to go to a hospital, nothing serious, just getting a referral. Or I had the referral to go there to a specialist to look at my weird lumpy head and go, yep, not a big deal, can barely see it, but hey, let's book you in. And because I cancelled my health fund hospital cover, I've got to wait probably a year before they can remove the small fatty nodule for my head. Yes, very hot, I'm sure, to picture. If you look me up, it's not really that bad. But, you know, I'm a vain motherfucker, so let's get rid of it. Plus the one or two that are on my belly. But again, you can't see them unless you really feel around for it. But I'm like, it's not meant to be there. So let's uh, get rid of it. God knows what I'd do if I had the money and time to really go nuts. I'd have perfect white teeth. I'd have still don't really have any wrinkles, but I've noticed a few grey hairs in my stubble. So I try and jump on those when I can. As much as we like to make fun of uh, elderly Hollywood celebrities doing all they can to stop the march of ageing or halt the progress of old man time, it's uh, exactly what I would do. I don't know about going full Mickey Rourke or who's the guy that pretty sure that's him was in The Wrestler and a bunch of other stuff and he just went way overboard and you can barely recognise him anymore I've got more respect for say I know Sly and Stallone are probably both doing the HGH the human growth hormones but at least they work out I mean they've got the time I'm a little jealous about that they've got enough money to sit on to just go yep personal trainer personal chef dietitian everything else but still respect where it's due Someone posted a meme the other day of him in his 70s now and him in the 70s being Mr. Universe and they were like, oh, you know, basically making fun of his decrepitude, which though, if you compare him to any other person of that age, he looks like a fucking beast from another planet that's like come down and shown us how we should all be living. So, you know, let's keep it in perspective. You know, it's truly an inspiration. And whenever I've seen any other elderly dudes that work out, like regularly pump iron, they're just like, wow, on another level of health compared to most other dudes their age who can barely walk. Getting around in those little shopping trolley electric carts and stuff. And if I want a chance to end up on my feet in my 70s, I need to uh, start doing a bit more. Rather, anything at this point would be an improvement. I do run around a little bit for work but not enough so uh coming this is another one of those pointless deadlines i've made sunday the 31st of march will be my birthday i will be turning the big four zero so that's pretty scary i'm gonna have a huge feast on saturday night with a few friends near blacktown at the lone star which i visited once for lunch this week and i think last week i was in there for i think that was lunch as well it was pretty good and not cheap that's one of those theme places where it's all Texas-style ribs and ridiculous sauces and lots of Western-themed decor. And it's cheesy, but hey, if you want it, it's there. Whatever you would want to put in your mouth, it's delicious. Even the vegan stuff. They've got a vegan burger, salads, but still, I'm not sure my one vegan friend is going to make it. 
might be a bit too hard for him to watch uh, us just tear literal bones out of ribs and uh, put them in our mouth. So good for him. Solid respect for sticking to your principles. He asked about an after party. Yeah, I'm too old for that. I'm 40, not 19, and I'm not uh, Justin Hems, who I think's now in his 30s. I'm not sure. He's one of those guys that owns a million nightclubs. And, of course, he would have a huge room and have bands and a pool party and then go out to a club afterwards that he owns. And I'm just not that guy. In a perfect world, hey, I wouldn't mind living that life now and then. I don't think I would do it for very long. I can see the appeal. I just don't think that's me. So good for him. Just walking a different path yeah so yeah, it's just going to be a quiet night in i'm looking forward to that otherwise i haven't done a lot i went and saw gee well the last movie i think was captain marvel so we haven't really i oh, know it was lego the movie too which was weird because i haven't seen the first one i normally try and avoid sequels if i can but considering it was just the most kids movie you could watch in the cinema at the moment i wasn't too bothered i mean i've got a rough idea of the plot it's a little bit like how much I know about The Lion King and uh, E.T. I still haven't seen, which blew Karen's mind the other day. I was like, well, just never got around to it. But I could almost tell you the plot and read out half the lines word for word because I just it's so permeated into pop culture. Even Jaws, that's another big one that I haven't seen. They're the big three, I think, Lion King, Jaws and E.T. that I've just managed to duck under that cultural bar. They're so much a part of pop culture that... I think you pick up most of it just through osmosis. So we'll go to IMDb and look that up. It was made by the Russo brothers. No, wait. The Lord guys. I'm going to get the wrong uh, director duo. But these guys were behind a lot of amazing movies. Jump Street, the one with Spider-Verse, the Lego movie, and read a little bit out about that. I won't go full hour long like I did with Captain Marvel. This is supposed to be a short one. I do have a pie in the oven. Speaking of eating healthy... I do plan to basically from next week cut out a try with the Coke Zero because I've only got two cans left and I'll just see if I can stick to that just finish them and and go next week at least to the gym twice a week I'm going to try and be realistic as well but also uh, lay off the pastry and junk food and stuff like that so I finished all the dip that I had I finished all the corn chips that's it no more we'll give it a shot Metascore 4 Lego Movie 2 the second part, which is a cute little subtitle, was 65, which isn't bad, considering the aggregate usually pulls it down. And I'm going to go to fucking trivia. There's a bit. That's okay, I'll fly through it. There was other things to talk about, but I'll stick to this for now. It's not going to be all night. Trust me. Actress, Stephanie Beatrice. She's from freaking um, Brooklyn 99. She's the cold hard killer. Yes, that's her. Uh, she's on Brooklyn 99 and Ice Age. I didn't realize she'd done so much uh, voice work. She is, I'm going to have to go, Rosa Diaz. I know I'm more as Rosa than her real name. I'm sure I'm not alone. So she plays Sweet Mayhem, a signature small scar on her right eyebrow, which was caused by, coincidentally enough, tripping on a piece of Lego when she was 10 years old. So that's uh, cute. So she played Sweet Mayhem, which I think was the new character. Yes, that's the new character that they introduced with the helmet. So you can't really... There's not a lot of acting going on other than, obviously, the voice work. And I don't think there was much done with, like, motion capture. Not a lot of motion capture in a Lego movie. I know they use real Lego for a lot of it, but uh, it's pretty much all CGI. But still, she was an interesting character. And it was a really sweet little... The premise! It was a sweet premise of the brother and sister uh, getting a little bit older than in the first movie, I'm assuming, 
and uh, separating their play. So she went upstairs, took some of his stuff to play with. He got a bit upset and comes upstairs to rescue it. And somehow on a meta level, the toys are acting that tension out through uh, their story as well. And it all makes a little bit more sense by the end when it gets referenced more heavily and they dip into the real world now and then. It's still a little tough for me. I'm not that smart. So uh, I could probably watch one and two again at some point to really get my teeth into it but yeah and it was fun i wouldn't watch it alone i wouldn't be like sitting there with my hand on my chin going oh that's what they meant don't overthink that stuff too much a lot of fourth wall breaking a lot of meta references uh rex danger vest comments about having a chiseled jawline hiding under baby fat are a reference to the physical change chris pratt went through preparing for his role in guardians well that was pretty obvious even i knew that during Gotham City Guys song, references are made to every actor who has previously played Batman in the movies. Christian, Michael, see I'm just saying the first names, we all know who they are, Ben, George and Val, and of course Adam West at one point. According to the voice actor in this film, who is Will Arnett, his favourite is Michael Keaton. I don't know if that's just the character saying that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure my, uh, Will Arnett probably would be his guy as well. A comment is made about Marvel not returning our calls. This likely references the fact that characters from the Marvel Universe are conspicuously absent from the Lego movies due to rights issues with Disney. Characters from the Star Wars Universe, also owned by Disney, appeared in the original Lego movie, but not in this sequel. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a shame, because it really is a bag of fun, and they should be able to just use the whole toy box. Pun intended. Emmett's dream house is actually based on the house Emmett crashes through when Lucy gives... There's a typo it's rare to see typos in here actually that crashes through and lucy gives him the controls to the bike in the first lego movie yeah see i missed that uh, sweet mayhem is based on the lego friends mini dolls yeah so are a bunch of the other mini dolls which i've only seen in the shops i've never seen them sort of being used in real life as a toy i think they're kind of aimed at young girls and i've only had two boys so not a lot of that lying around the opening bars of everything's not awesome has a similar piano and guitar arrangement as karma police by radiohead Hence, the reference to the band in the song's lyrics. Well, there you go. It's nice of them to loop that around. Jorma Tacconi, voice of Larry Poppins, is one-third of the Lonely Island who co-wrote and performed the song Everything is Awesome in the first Lego movie. Of course it was those guys. Jake Peralta, what are you doing in the Lego films? That's someone they need for maybe number three. Let's bring the whole Lonely Island crew over. Will Ferrell's The Man Upstairs doesn't appear on screen except for reused footage. Only his voice is heard. That's kind of a pity. He's obviously a lot of fun to see on screen. Richard Aoi, I don't know how to do his name. The guy who plays Moss in the IT crowd. And he went on to a fantastic career in other shows. He's always going to be my favourite comedic actor in British TV. And that's a big halo because there's some real giants in that field. He plays an ice cream cone. No, Noel Fielding, Balthazar, are longtime friends and frequent collaborators, having worked together on the Mighty Boosh and the IT crowd. So I didn't recognize uh, Noel Fielding, but big fan of him as well. Unikitty's brother, Puppycorn, from the Cartoon Network spin-off Unikitty, makes a cameo. Okay, not aware of that series, but good on them. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller will be returning as writers for the sequel. Some of these are obviously written before it came out. Uh, it addresses one of the main criticisms of the first movie, the fact that even though Wildstyle, a.k.a. Lucy, was a tougher and smarter character and did most of the work, Emmett was regarded as the hero. Yeah, they do mention that. I don't know uh, how that had gone down, but 
it seemed to be part of the whole joke. They're like, he's our leader. What did he do? Mm, pretty much nothing. He just kind of was a symbol. Yeah. Let's see. It had to be moved to this year because of the Despicable Me 3 and Cars 3, both of which were the third installment of their franchise, as well as an original film, Captain Underpants. So it got pushed back to not compete with those. Fair enough. Well, hopefully that gave them more time to polish it. Kobe Smulders reprises her role of Wonder Woman. It was the female superhero's animated theatrical film debut. She was filming Spider-Man Far From Home uh, around the same time as this production. I don't know if she was in that too. She's amazing. She really gets around. Good on her. She's always uh, easy on the eye and obviously on the ears as well. Jason Momoa does the voice for Aquaman. I didn't realize that actually used him. That's pretty cool. Uh, Warner Animation's group six feature film. Keep them coming. Three different versions of Wonder Woman are shown. Minifig, Mini Doll, and Duplo. I don't know if they used Kobe for all the voices. They had different voices, but they could have still used her. They try to uh, get as much out of them as they can, so why not? With the inclusion of his John McClane role in Fox's Die Hard franchise, this is the second that Bruce Willis' role is acted outside of the franchise. This is the first was the mobile game Family Guy, The Quest for Stuff. So it's not clear from that whether that was actually Bruce Willis's voice. When Emmett makes his spaceship to rescue his friends, he tells Planty to buckle up, a reference to the Guardians of the Galaxy when Star-Lord tells Groot to buckle up. Well, that's cute. That totally went over my head. Nick Offerman and Stephanie Beatrice's second animated movie together. I knew I recognised his name uh, when it was in the credits. Good old uh, dude from Parks and Rec. Very funny man. Uh, this is the first Warner Animation Group sequel film. Warner Brothers' fourth animated sequel. God, they're all about the numbers and the stats less interesting to me and Will Farrell and Maya Rudolph who plays the mum were both castmates on SNL yeah I've seen her around a bit very funny woman Will Farrell's fourth animated film he yeah he's always busy with that throwing his voice out there the second Warner animation group film to be rated PG first Lego movie obviously not counting live action animation hybrids like Space Jam this is the fifth animated film to use a live action sequence after Happy Feet Happy Feet 2 uh, the first Lego movie and the Lego Ninjago movie, which I haven't seen. Apparently, it's not very good. Even Lewis, who's generally quite an easy audience, was like, no, that was crap. Uh, but he had good fun with this one, so that was great. We went with him, his two little brothers, their parents. So that was awkward, but it got worse about through maybe the first half had just finished, and the smaller one started bawling. Mum eventually took him out because I was like, Lewis, can she just take him out? Like, it's ridiculous. He was crying for like 20 minutes. And, you know, it's a late showing. We got, got, didn't get in there till 7. By that point, it was probably close to 8. He's like 2. It was nuts. As soon as he left, then the older one, who's maybe 5, uh, was like, oh, I want to go out too. Where's Mum? So then we had to put up with that. I'm, I'm being a little bitch here, but basically it was... Again, it's a kid's movie, so I couldn't be too bothered about the interruptions, but I'm hoping they're not a regular appearance. They're just not quite old enough yet. Now, I wouldn't take Gabriel to the movies at this point. He slept through most of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which was fine, but once he woke up, I had him straight out. No interrupting people. Luckily, I'd already seen it. Bruce Willis's fourth theatrically released animated film. So he was in it. Wow. Okay, good on him. He'll take that check. Second film to feature Mike Mitchell and Mark Mothersbaugh after Alvin and the Chipmunks. I don't know who they are, but okay. Velma from the Scooby-Doo franchise makes a cameo appearance. Oh, yeah. Uh, possibly to tease the upcoming Scoob. Yeah, I did notice her. That was cute. The third group... Oh, Jesus. 
film to use live action sequences after well see that contradicts previous post about all the other ones that have live action hybrids like you know space jam osmosis jones looney tunes back in action and there they say it's the fifth one so i think that's more accurate that it's fifth you're wrong uh richard iod's third animated film after the box trolls and early man i hope he keeps getting work forever because he is amazing Channing Tatum's fifth animated movie after the Lego movie. Uh, okay, so which one was he? I don't really care. Rex Dangervest, uh, the main antagonist, says he's a galaxy-defending archaeologist, cowboy, and raptor trainer, to which Emmett is confused. They're obviously all referencing different things that uh, Chris Pratt has done. At the very end of the film, Will Ferrell says off-screen, Honey, where are my pants? This was the title of Emmett's favorite show from the first movie. When the Justice League go to fight the alien invaders, someone asks where Batman is, to which Superman replies that he's off on a solo adventure. That's probably referencing the Lego Batman movie. That's what I thought. During one of the early live-action sequences, Finn can be heard to say, I'm crafting a narrative involving time travel, foreshadowing events in the movie. I don't remember that. So it's pretty clever. Rex seems to have some level of meta-awareness, as he says to Emmett that everything that's happening isn't real, and it's just a metaphor for the loss of imagination in the mind of an adolescent. I did really like that line. It was delivered underneath the dryers when they were having their showdown near the end, and I thought it was more... I I thought it explained things more than that. If it's just that, that does sort of leave out a bit. Like, I, I did want there to be more of, like, this is exactly what's going on, because I like to have it all explained to me. Um, even if it has to be done with images, I like to know what's going on. I still, it's still that. It's, uh, none of it's real, and it's just a metaphor for the loss of imagination in the mind of an adolescent. Well, hopefully they got their imagination back, and that's what seems to happen at the end of the film, thankfully. Whether that's got anything to do with what the toys themselves, whether they have any agency, is not clear, but I think it's pretty much all on the back of Finn and Bianca which yeah cheapens it, it sort of to me undercuts the amount of inv- emotion we would invest in those main characters the lego pieces because it's like well it's all just they're just shadow puppets for what's going on in the mind of the kids and yeah to me that cheapens it a little but it's still still super cute when maya the mum steps on a brick she comments that the level of pain is close to that of childbirth obviously she's joking the studies have shown that the pain of stepping on lego bricks is actually higher than that of walking across hot coals or broken glass. Yep, I would agree with that. In the scene near the wedding, Emmett jumps over the rim of the pyramid-shaped planet, while Rex stays on it while they're talking. This makes it appear as Emmett is standing at a lake talking to his mirror image, which foreshadows the story that both are one and the same person. This is a Unikitty stuffed toy that can be bought in real life from the Unikitty spin-off series, this seems to explain that Unikitty was a show in the universe before it was even a show in real life. It's considering the character was original to the Lego movie brand and how well made the toy is, it could imply the boy, Finn, most likely got her from a Lego Unikitty box set instead of making her himself. At one point in the movie, Emmett says, let's go save our friends to Rex Danger Vest. But at this point, Rex hasn't met any of them yet. Since the audience have yet to learn that Rex is Emmett, Meaning, this could be a foreshadowing of that reveal. Yeah, okay. There's no goofs at all, which I'm fine with because I'm not a big fan of goofs. So that was it. I usually look at reviews. They don't have the, the quick review quotes here. There's just the one user review at the top of the page, which I guess is the most useful one out of 278 of them. So let's see what they say. Because it's all right there. 
I don't have to click to see the rest. It's, it's right in front of me. And it is from the user Bastille. I love the first Lego movie. I really like the Lego Batman movie. I was skeptical about seeing this one uh, since the trailers looked far inferior to both and I would not have paid full price to see it. But attended an advanced screening. While it's not as good as either of those two films, it's still a really enjoyable sequel for those that like this franchise. The voice cast is excellent, that's true. Uh, as the film's pop culture references are, surprisingly if you surprisingly for the most part just as fresh and clever in the first film the film picks up right where the lego movie left off as duplo larger size legos intended for small children aliens invade bricksburg while the film's plot ends up being all over the place by the end viewers just roll with it and enjoy the ride since this franchise relishes its own self-aware and sometimes absurd nature despite this the film always feels properly paced and never drags the animation is great although it doesn't feel quite as unique as when the first movie came out However, given the overexposure of the Lego brand over the past five years, that's to be expected. Despite those positive elements, the film has a few notable weak spots, a glaring cliché mobilised into an attempt at a plot twist, and less clever writing than in the first movie or in the Lego Batman movie, although there are still plenty of witty laughs for both kids and adults. While I don't think anyone who disliked the first film would care for it, this is an entertaining film that exceeded my expectations for it, uh, 7 out of 10, and I would give it a similar score. I'm He's right on the money there. Seven's about where it deserves to sit. God, there's a lot of big names in there. Jonah Hill was Green Lantern. Yeah, Charlie Day was Benny. Nick Offerman, again, was Metalbeard. Oh, he's that pirate guy. Okay. Alison Brie was Uni Kitty. Would have loved to have seen all of them in a room, but who knows? They probably all went in there at different times. Uh, the box office was $100 million was the budget. The opening weekend was $35 million. Gross so far, well, up to the 24th, was $100 million. So at least it's made its money back so far. And I don't know if that's... That's just the US gross. So obviously, yeah, it's doing quite well. They knew that. It was, it was just a money spinner. So they're going to keep those coming and hopefully they can stay at least as adequate as the second. So let's move on to... I had some articles that I wanted to talk about. I had a whole thread on Reddit that I found really interesting. But I might save that for next time considering we're already at 25 minutes and I do want to keep these reasonably short because you know I've got to edit this motherfucker and that's what kills me I'm sitting there at the end of every day going oh that's going to take time and an hour long podcast could take me all to do 10 minutes basically will get take me an hour or so just because I get so distracted and also I don't know just sitting there chopping bits out it's surprisingly time consuming I don't know how movie directors do it I'm not surprised at how they disappear for months on end and um, yeah mad respect for being able to just shut everything else off and get into it. I'm thinking about starting a new podcast of all things and I'm sort of tentatively titling it Tales from the Short Side. A short stories is the theme. I've got no real hard... Uh, I'd love it to be just science fiction but I don't know how easy it would be fi- be able to find uh, a lot of short stories that I could actually read out without you know stealing them, I, which I'm not going to do. I've posted in a few writers groups people seem to be coming out with their stories uh, what I've read so far is good so I'm just going to read whatever I get sent and eventually if I you know, get enough followers and spam enough expressions of interest for those writers I can sort of lean towards sci-fi when I've got the choice that seems like a no-brainer uh, people like to listen to stories you throw one up now and then and it gives them something to just pass the time on their commute whereas this stuff I think is less accessible where I'm just chatting about my day and different films I've seen it's not 
like there's enough film podcasts out there there's a lot of story ones i was going to go with story time something but there's a shit ton of those as well but i still think it's uh, a better chance of getting some listeners and traction so we'll see how that goes and, I, and for me it'll be fun get to practice using my speaking voice and honing it to be you know just easier on the ear which i know at this point is still a bit rough uh, someone got back to me recently and said yeah you could really hear the difference between your first episode it was a lot more umming and ahhing and and gaps and my recent one to me i was like well that just means i'm editing them better now but hopefully there is a difference in quality and it will just keep on getting better so i like to hear that kind of thing Uh, all feedback i can get even if it's negative as long as i can do something with it then you know fire away so i had this article sitting here i've just landed on and it's kind of not really anything I've been talking about, but hey, like Michael Jackson and R. Kelly's songs, but not them, ethical approaches for how to deal with it. So it is a topic I've brought up now and then, whether you can enjoy an artist's product, even if you don't like the artist. So there's Kevin Spacey, there's Bill Cosby, there's all these controversial people that are directly involved in making the content, even Louis C.K. to a degree, though he's not on the same level as the others. Uh, obviously, R. Kelly is a monster. Woody Allen, I think a bit less so. Like his, I mean, unless the allegations are true about him and uh, one of his other daughters or something. Like, and he, the whole main sketchy thing that most people have been a bit on the fence about is is the fact that he married uh, not his own adopted daughter, but his ex-wife's adopted daughter. So, it, yeah, on the face of it, it all sounds very sketchy. But he didn't meet her again until she was. 19 or something and then they started hanging out and yeah it's it's really hard to spin it in any kind of positive way it's always going to come off creepy but i think the fact that he'd made like a hundred movies that were basically critics darlings it really shielded him from a lot of the uh sort of criticism that anyone else would get for it so it's kind of not cool that basically because he was so popular he got to uh a bit of a teflon skin there for some pretty shady goings on uh michael jackson obviously the documentary's just been released about him with two or three of his victims air quotes telling their side of the story uh, even though they'd been in court they had been thrown out uh, criminal court civil court thrown out they owe the, the estate a lot of money and there's some allegations that that's why they're doing this documentary so yeah and i've talked about that before with all his music taken off the air which i think is going a little too far but you know because all these kids are just kids these guys who are now well into their 30s and i guess 40s are like coming out now even though they've denied in the past anything happened and that's something you can't hold against them because that's something that they might have had reasons for doing but uh it's basically their word against a dead man so it's it's tricky stuff but anyway let's see what this guy's got to say oh sorry this lady has to say a Sieben Hegarty. I don't think I've met a Sieben, so I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. But basically, it's on the ABC website, which is you know my go-to now for news. Fuck paywalls. I buy the Sydney Morning Herald if that helps uh, on the Saturday, and it sits somewhere either in my car or the house <laughs> until I don't know. I don't have electricity, and at least I've got that to read. If I start paying for that, then I've got to pay for how god knows how many other websites and i'm just as long as the abc still gets its money from the government until the liberals oh that's the other thing i voted last week i'll never get to this article will i 
But yeah, I voted for Danny Lim. I meant to vote for Meow Meow Ludo's party. They've renamed themselves to Flux. I didn't know that at the time. Even though it had been posted on Facebook, I completely forgot. And I'm looking at the voting paper and I'm just like, where's the science party? Well, I'll vote for Danny Lim because he's hilarious. I guess it was a bit of a, whatever you call it, a throwaway vote because obviously the Liberals got back in and no one's happy about that. I haven't met one person who voted for them. There's a big silent majority out there of complete tools. So that's unfortunate. And a lot of racist people, which I'm more and more exposed to as I spend time on Facebook in groups like uh, the Aussie Man Cave and Get It Off Your Chest or whatever it is. And it's just like, oh, you can't even... There's no getting through. If you try and throw facts, they're just like, well, that's what... They they just discredit the source, even though it's as legitimate as you can get. They're literally stuck on that high horse about the whole white is right. What's that thing Pauline Hanson came out with, uh... Let's put something through Parliament saying it's okay to be white. Well, yeah, we know that. For the last 200 years here, it's been the best thing to be. And it's still pretty much a lot of privilege. It's getting better, but it's oh, it was the most unnecessary motion ever. And I was reading an article about her today and how anti-Aboriginal she was when she first came out and then all the anti-Asian stuff. Of course, at the voting booth, I saw some young Asian guy with a One Nation shirt on handing out flyers and the member was like Amit Singh or something like that for One Nation. I was just like, do you have no memory or a very short one? Because just a couple of years ago, she couldn't say enough to get you guys out of here. But okay, let's get into this freaking article. Right. Now, many of us are wrestling with an uncomfortable yet essential question about Michael Jackson. Given everything we know, can we continue listening to his music? The gut-wrenching documentary Leaving Neverland aired earlier this year containing graphic descriptions of Jackson's alleged grooming and sexual abuse of children, and since then it's been a hot-button topic of discussion. But this moral quandary goes far beyond Jackson. We've grappled with shocking allegations leveled at creators from all spheres, from Woody Allen, and Harvey Weinstein, to Louis C.K., and even Picasso. And last month, R. Kelly was charged with sexually abusing minors. The case spawned hashtag mute R. Kelly, an online movement calling for the singer's music to be banned from clubs, radio stations, and concert bookings, hence hitting his financial and social standing. But it's one thing to delete ignition from our playlists, it's another to erase Jackson's entire catalogue. So, how should we deal with a morally tainted artist? Do we stop listening and pretend they never existed? Do we ignore allegations and keep pumping morally dubious songs at house parties? Is there some kind of middle ground? To navigate this complex dilemma and others like it, we've started a new series here at ABC Life called It's Complicated. Each fortnight, we speak to philosophers, ethicists, and cultural experts about ethical issues in the realm of pop culture. It's complicated. It isn't about telling you what to do. We're here to help explore the moral justifications behind the different paths you could take. There might not be a universally right answer, but there will be one that feels right for you. So let's get into it. Why do we feel uncomfortable consuming the art of a bad creator? The relationship between the artist and their work is the crux of this conundrum. If an artwork channels its creator's harmful worldview, or worse still, their wrongdoings, then it's easy to see how celebrating their mastery could be viewed as a celebration of their misconduct. Some art validates the allegations made against its creator. R. Kelly wrote and produced the song Age Ain't Nothing But A Number for songstress Aaliyah when she was 15, the same year they married. For Scott Stevens, a theologian and co-host of The Minefield, Kelly's music celebrates a misogynistic, chest-bearing, I think he's meant to say chest-beating, 
That could work both ways. Chest-bearing masculinity. As Stephen puts it, do we need to wait until an artist is found guilty of the things he's singing about before we should begin to put up the red flag and say, is this the sort of thing we should be listening to? Well, God, then don't listen to Eminem or OST or God knows how many other rappers. It's true, we could and perhaps should have asked ourselves that same question about countless records in the past. Like when Eminem released the rage-filled song Kim in 2000 that detailed the fictional murder of his ex-wife. That's exactly who I was thinking of. But the issue is much broader than accusations against recording artists. Philosopher and senior lecturer at Deakin University, Patrick Stokes, says that celebrated Australian painter Donald Friend actually documented the abuse he inflicted throughout his art. A lot of the painting he did in Bali of young boys, he was abusing those boys. So in effect, that is a case where there's a much more direct connection between the art that's produced and the person who produces that art. But when it comes to Jackson, the relationship between his music alleged offences isn't as clear-cut. Thriller, unlike age ain't nothing but a number, isn't a defence of pedophilia. You could say that there's no intrinsic connection between this sort of offending he engaged in and the sort of music itself. Stevens believes we had reason to be more critical. When a particular form of art is designed to draw everybody into my orbit, and one of the side effects is drawing especially vulnerable others into that orbit, you suddenly realise that there's nothing neutral about these performances. In other words, just because Jackson's music wasn't problematic, it did help propel him to fame, wealth, and a level of untouchability that enabled the alleged abuse to take place. According to Stevens, that's why this concept of separating the art from the artist doesn't quite hold up. The intrinsically connected... I think this is where we begin getting to the real moral problem of Michael Jackson's own art. Oh, I don't know if I agree with the direction that's going, but okay. Gotta listen. What do we do about Michael Jackson and R. Kelly now? Okay, so we canvassed at the start. There are essentially three options. One, keep consuming their work with a clear conscience. After all, the art and the artist's wrongdoings are separate. Two, remove the artist's work from your life. Three, continue consuming, albeit with mixed emotions. Well, that's pretty weak. As our experts explained above, the first is pretty hard position to justify. But if that's where you sit, it certainly makes art consumption a lot easier. Post hashtag me too calls to boycott or mute artists have become more popular. But what does boycotting actually do? Is it just about making us feel good or can it have a more tangible impact? Stephen said this approach does have broader ethical underpinnings. If artists are still alive and if they stand to profit, then I think there are very good reasons to say I don't want royalties to go back to that person. But not everyone agrees with this tactic. American philosophers Matthew Stroll and Mary Beth Willard have given serious consideration to how we should deal with the morally tainted artist, and they take a different stance. I think, says Dr. Stroll, that your own private listening choices just don't matter. Not only in the case of Michael Jackson, but even in the case of R. Kelly, let's say, who would directly benefit from your streaming his music. He's only going to benefit one-tenth of a percentage of one cent. It's a tiny little drop in the bucket. Of course, online streaming isn't the only revenue model for artists. CD sales dwindling but existent and concert tickets put larger percentages into their pockets. So they are factors to consider when allegedly abusive artists go on tour. For Dr. Stroll, the main consequences come from publicising our listening habits. If we tell everyone we've listened to R. Kelly, that could be read as an endorsement of the artist and a rejection of the victim's allegations. Dr. Willard adds that the group consumption is far more complex matter. If Michael Jackson were to come on at a party hosted by a friend right now, I might feel an obligation to take that friend aside and say, look, this is going to seem really insensitive to people who might be assault survivors and it might be in poor taste, she explains. 
For Dr. Willard, the ethical question isn't whether our money should be going to a disgraced artist or their estate. Instead, she believes we need to focus on whether our playing a certain song or artist causes more harm than good. Okay, that's a better approach. Is cancel culture the ethical option? Across the world, radio stations have banned the music of Jackson and R. Kelly. Dr. Stroll says this response is understandable. In this cultural moment, I think absolutely radio stations should not play Michael Jackson. The main reason is that someone who has, let's say, been a sexual assault victim as a child, they hear Michael Jackson without warning, and it can be very upsetting. But are blanket bans justified, or do they remove the listener's ability and responsibility to make their own moral judgments? Dr. Stokes thinks that while cancelling an artist might make us feel good, it also absolves us of responsibility a little too quickly. The term cancel, as the kids say now, is an absolute writing off, an absolute no, that's dead to me sort of thing, he says. I'm a little uneasy with it because it seems to me it crosses a point from active condemnation to a kind of blanking that simultaneously excuses the viewer or the listener from having to do any further work. For Dr. Willard, cancel culture doles out punishment but overlooks the need for redemption. Cancel culture says you're done and it doesn't give you a script for coming back, she explains. Let's suppose somebody is cancelled because of accusations against them. It's not clear right now what they can do to atone, to make amends and then to resume their career in any way. Without that, it seems like it's potentially an overly powerful weapon. In the case of child sex abuse, like the allegations against Jackson and Kelly, we might not want to waste energy on redemption. But when it comes to still serious but less heinous allegations, such as those levelled at Louis C.K., uh, is who I was thinking of, the path forward is more complex. We don't ordinarily think that someone has committed a crime, therefore forgoes their career for their entire life, points out Dr. Stroll. Well, it depends on the career. But I can't imagine there's going to be suddenly a statement saying, we've all decided Louis C.K. is welcome back. So it's not just black and white. As consumers of pop culture, we can feel powerless when we learn that our favourite singer, filmmaker, actor or writer is guilty of committing serious transgressions. And as Dr. Stroll says... In a lot of cases, the only thing that's in your power to do is to abstain from the music and maybe to make a bit of a show of it. But Lauren Carroll Harris, co-host of ABC's The Screen Show, believes we have more power than that. We actually do have a political voice beyond what we stream. That's not the only way to enact agency in this very muddy, crazy, out-of-control world that we live in, she says. Sometimes these personal ethical quandaries are coming from a place of disenfranchisement and trying to exercise some moral authority, but we should also be pushing for the ethics of how the industries operate in entertainment, in art and media. Dr. Carol Harris says it's possible to appreciate an artwork while also condemning the artist. She uses the example of Picasso, one of the most influential visual artists in history, who was called out by Hannah Gadsby as a misogynist, an abuser of women, in her critically acclaimed stand-up special, Nanette. Picasso innovated modern art at a number of different points along his timeline, whether it was the blue period, cubism, and bringing three-dimensionalities to the two-dimensional plane, or Guernica, his statement on war, Dr. Carol Harris notes. I think that those artworks are worth assessing for what they contributed to the culture and how they innovated. If we abhor an artist's actions in their life, we can revise and reassess their place, and we can attach that critique of who they were in their life to our discussion as them as artists. We don't actually have to strike their work out from the record. For Stevens, this calls on us to realise that artists, like all humans, can be capable of both virtuous and evil acts. 
We've come to think of a lot of people as single-dimensional or relatively simple persons, he says. If they are evil, and they are evil all the way down, all of their thoughts are evil, all of their desires are evil, all of their designs are evil. Of course, he points out this is never the case. As an artist, Jackson made immense contributions to popular music throughout the 20th century. His legacy lives on in a current generation of musicians, including Bruno Mars, Drake, Beyonce and Janelle Monáe. Even if we decide to stop listening to his work, how can we untangle his influence from the rest of contemporary pop culture? If we keep consuming, then what? While boycotting the works of morally tainted artists might seem like the right thing to do, Dr. Stroll warns that in reality it's almost impossible to carry out. It's easy to do on a small scale when you're talking about just Michael Jackson or R. Kelly, but if we take the whole history of art into consideration, there's a lot of bad people. You can't just sort of walk through a museum and assume that the art was made by people who didn't rape anybody. Many of those people were bad. So what then? Should we just face up to the fact that many of our idols and inspirations are morally challenged? Turns out, that actually might be our best bet. If you've got an artist who's really terrible, maybe you just shouldn't enjoy them anymore. Or maybe your enjoyment is just going to be very complicated, Dr. Stokes says. Maybe art appreciation isn't going to be as simple as, hey, this is a catchy tune, I like it. Or maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it's complicated. So that was longer than I expected, and there's going to be more of them. So that's cool, because I really like their take on it. There's a lot of different voices, and I, to a degree, can see points in all of them. So look forward to seeing more of that. There's a whole bunch of related articles there, which is cool. Um, And the cat is walking. Oh, my God. Don't go on the keyboard. Okay? You might stop the podcast, and that would be a disaster. But given that the cat is here, my pie is ready, I think that will be enough for podcast 47 of the Solid 60. Thank you for listening thus far. If you have, I know there's at least two or three of you. So much love. From the end of March, I'll probably... I'll try and get another one in before my birthday. We'll see how we go. Because I did want to talk about some other stuff, but I don't want to drag you through an entire hour of it. So we'll, we'll make it. we'll make it here. We'll make it now. Enjoy your day. And good morning and good night. Have a solid week. Mm-hmm.